I, I, I like the one where I don't know what that's called when you balance on a beam and hit someone with. Yes. Oh yeah, the uh, American Gladiator type. Yeah, that I enjoyed very much. <laughs> <laughs> now is that you took me down with your face. <laughs> you took me down with your expression. I, I I have no physical ability, so I had to be like totally emotive. Yeah, <laughs> it worked. Uh, that was a real blast. I mean, my entire goal there was to just stay on the beam and not go down without being hit. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Site Visit, a podcast dedicated to engaging architecture everywhere. I'm Ashley Bigham, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Herman. Eric, what do we do on this podcast? We visit a site, and then we talk about it. Exactly. Each episode of Site Visit begins with a visit to an architectural site chosen by the guest and follows with a conversation centered on the experience. To keep up with the latest or to see photos from these site visits, Follow us on Instagram, that's at SiteVisitPod, or visit SiteVisitPod.com. Today we're joined by Anya Sirota, an architectural designer, researcher, and educator. With her partner, Jean-Louis Farge, she directs the Detroit-based studio Akuaki. Through a distinct synthesis of aesthetics, social enterprise, and cultural programming, the practice has established a reputation for innovation in the urban realm. The work, grounded in an affection for collective, unrestrictive, and inclusive experience, has recently been featured in exhibitions at the Vitre Design Museum, the Saint-Étienne Biennale, and the Detroit Institute of Art. Anya teaches at the University of Michigan's Taubman College of Architecture and Urban Planning, where she directs the Michigan Architecture Preparatory Program in Detroit. On today's site visit, we're going to discuss our recent trip to Sky Zone in Ann Arbor, Michigan, an interior trampoline park popular for kids' birthday parties, gymnastics training, or simply exerting some pent-up energy. We began by asking Anya to explain why she chose Sky Zone for today's site visit and how the building has come to represent a new medium through which she's been able to understand architecture, program, and its cultural implications. So we visited Airtime which is frankly a kind of grade B trampoline park. You know, a grade A trampoline park would be um, Sky Zone, like Mm. the inventor of the trampoline experience. But we went to like a a lesser, uh, but equally valuable trampoline um, environment. And the one that I selected is in a semi-functional strip mall, where, you know, half of the properties are probably empty. And uh, this one was inserted into the Anchor um, Corner uh, store. And um, it's an amazing environment. You enter and um, there's a kiosk and there's a bit of blasting music. Typically it's Beyonce. We didn't get as much Beyonce as I like uh, when when I go there. And uh, you encounter a plinth. You encounter an interior micro plinth that's uh, hiding all of the mechanics of this incredible environment. And uh, you pay a ticket by the hour. It's like, I love spaces where you have to pay by the hour. (laughs) And this is one of them. We we purchased just one hour. We could have stayed there for three. We could have stayed there for the whole day, frankly. And then you ascend this plinth and um, it's orange. It's kind of in these um, Halloween colors. there are flags telling you how to begin to, to read it and where the activities are. But ultimately, it's a kind of ongoing landscape where there's an array of trampolines embedded in a surface. 
and there's just a little bit of sticky tape and sort of, you know, like there's a bit of caution tape feeling about it and uh, the smell of teenage sweat. Yeah, a lot of the smells. And like, it's yeah. it, it's interesting because when you walk in, it's instantly so you can see clear yeah. to the back of the space. Absolutely. So there's no secrets. Like it's all yeah. kind of disclosed. Yeah. And it washes over you super fast. Yeah. Um, the smell comes mm-hmm. as do the waves of cho- like so many kids around. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that's like really striking is like the very first thing you have to do is you have to sign a waiver. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you do. You have to sign the waiver. You have to put on your sticky socks. Yeah, the socks. The socks. And even when you sign the waiver, within any view of that environment, there is an additional cautionary sign that tells you about what you cannot litigate. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, what happens when things go wrong and uh, that everything you're doing is um, in according to your own risk. Right. Yeah, potentially hazardous and dangerous, but yet Very there are uh, mostly children uh, bouncing around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, yeah. It, it's an environment that, mm-hmm. um, yeah, is is very clearly mm-hmm. ge- geared for children. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of birthday parties. They have an entire room just or kind of platform overlooking the mm-hmm. trampoline space where you can have your birthday party with pizza slices. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> snack bar. Yeah, um, yeah. Lots of drinks and so you know sodas, M and M's. People are there on dates. Yeah, <laughs> they were. Yeah. Oh, I, I maybe I missed the dates. Yeah, I think <laughs> maybe were, like teenage were dates. No, or no, adult dates. Okay. Dates. You can go there on a date. Because there's like an entire span. There's like the kid there for the casual <laughs> birthday party, mm-hmm. and then there's like the aspiring gymnast. Yeah. So people like in full <laughs> leotards, like ready to go. Uh-huh. And I guess maybe this like <laughs> is a nice way to segue into like. Mm-hmm. So it's a landscape. Yes. It's just like the super studio of bounce. Yes. And then there's like multiple activities. So mm-hmm. let's go over like some of the activities because we went to like mm-hmm. every station. We did. Right? And so where do we start? We started with like a... We started with the freestyle that, that's area. That's my favorite. Yeah, which mm-hmm. which was my favorite as well, which mm-hmm. is all the way in the back of the space. Yeah. So you walk through and pass all of the basketball courts and the mazes and mm-hmm. the dodgeball. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get to basically the, the end of the space, which is just a big grid of trampolines. Yeah. And little square trampolines. Um, and everybody takes one. Yes. Uh, and then you can bounce between them. Um, but you can can't bounce on the same one as someone else. Yeah. And they warp and wrap up the walls. So you're on yeah. this like kind of orange grid yeah. with black squares of yeah. bounce. Yeah. That array of trampolines yeah. that becomes the wall. I love it. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love it because it's prefab artifacts mm-hmm. that are stitched together. They're really rigged together in a, in a very informal way. And then there's just a kind of safety mechanism to produce the grid so that you can stop balancing at some point. Yeah, there's like soft padding. Soft padding between. between. But it seems that, you know, it's been cobbled together with as-found materials, and then it still produces an infinite field condition, Mm -hmm. or the sentiment that you could keep on going. I frankly can't stop. You know, like when I I (laughs) start bouncing there, it's just hard to to stop. You keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was the great uh, moment, too. So in the very front, and one of the last things that we did, we sort of started at the back and worked our way to the front of the warehouse space, um, we did the rock climbing wall. Mm -hmm. And when I made it to the top of the rock climbing (laughs) wall and looked over behind it, I was 
sort of horrified, but but then I knew, of course, exactly what's back there, right? Yeah. It's just like kind of frame system, yeah. uh, empty empty structure, you know. Yeah. And so you realize that that is really, as you say, sort of rigged together, right? It's just mm-hmm. like there's just a scaffold behind all of this stuff that is creating the illusion of solid surfaces, like hard materials, thick mm-hmm. um, structure when it when it's all kind of false facades. Yeah, and it, it's not concerned with giving you the sentiment that that illusion is seamless. Yeah, it just reveals itself in the most casual and arbitrary moments right. in, the, in the yeah they easily could have closed up that gap at the top but, but they, they didn't. clearly didn't care yeah that's not an issue yeah yeah but, I guess it goes with like the kind of like rough and tumble image of the place yeah no like the mm-hmm. the grid is the least programmed part right like you can mm-hmm. it's free play it's yeah. in the kind of title of it you can do whatever you want mm-hmm. some of the other more structured activities aren't really as much fun because they're just kind of Straightforward, but we did do a couple great ones. So, but can can I tell you? Can I like confess why I like that place? Yeah, so much? of course. Like beyond the the mechanics of how the plinth works and how yes. it bounces around, um, I love origin stories. Mm. And for me, this place has like a double failure that somehow risen to be useful, occupied, and enthusiastic um, against all odds. Mm. So I don't know if you like. This this one this one is airtime, but um, Sky Zone, the origin story of Sky Zone is kind of fascinating. The very first one was built in Las Vegas in two thousand and four, by an entrepreneur. I think his name was um, Rick Platt, and Rick thought that he was going to invent a new sport, like a kind of gladiator arena mm-hmm. for the contemporary moment. And so he built up this this space with the with the grid of uh, trampolines and uh, included all of these really complicated um, hoops and things that you're supposed to fly through. And he hired an entire staff of athletes to um, animate this scenario and create a spectacle, an athletic spectacle mm-hmm. that he thought was going to catch on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And no one showed up. The audience was just not interested. Yeah. They didn't want to watch it. And so it really, like, very quickly went out of business. No one was into it. But there were some skaters, apparently, who heard that the space existed, and they asked for permission to use it. And very quickly, he realized that the audience didn't want to watch it. They wanted to participate in it. And so he opened it up as a space where he charged $8 to get in. And I think, like, the story goes that within, like, six months, he basically began to recuperate his losses. And his son picked up the idea and turned it into an enterprise, a, a, you know, a company, and franchised these things. And even I think that there's, like, a copyright or a patent on, on the way that they rig the trampolines together, even mm-hmm. though it seems like someone must have yeah. done that before. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't seem that original yeah. Yeah. as a concept. And so there's that original programmatic failure of yeah. having a vision, but then mm-hmm. just sort of misinterpreting the way um, the scale figure would interact with that kind of environment, yeah. that, you know, vision would be enough. Mm-hmm. would be satiating enough that, that you wouldn't want to participate yourself. But then, like, the second failure is that it's then inserted into a little big box mm-hmm. in that kind of strip mall context. Mm-hmm. So you take a once-failed program and you insert it into another failed program, and somehow, through um, the miracle of, like, radical juxtaposition, it works in the popular imaginary and it's it's full of people. Mm-hmm. And so for us, like, I don't know, Jean-Louis, my partner, and I are always looking for these kinds of bizarre spaces where architecture might not have predicted 
that this kind of occupation would happen, and yet suddenly we learn from the way people appropriate space. I think of your work uh, a lot about actually program, but um, program as a kind of spectacle, but also the, um, I like that kind of idea about an original failure yet finding the success within the failure, right? Mm-hmm. So um, you, yes, as you mentioned, you and your partner do a lot of work um, in Detroit and you're often working in spaces where um, maybe nobody knows what to do with that space or mm-hmm. um, there have been lots of different things attempted in the space or finding kind of, um, yeah, urban zones of, of possibility, right? You're kind of yeah. always um, projecting a possible a possible future for um, mm-hmm. a space, and so that to me that that kind of makes a lot of sense then with with your work. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting too because I think that as invested as we are in the experience that we had and the kind of level of participation, um, it it really the architecture or design plays like an equal role, right? Mm-hmm. So I think what I'm really interested in is the way that you kind of talk about the kind of improvised use of let's call it like kind of like stock things or, mm-hmm. or things that are maybe have one fixed conventional role mm-hmm. you know and um, maybe you could talk a little bit about mm-hmm. that because I know that in mm-hmm. the practice a lot of the focus is making sure mm-hmm. that you can bridge this kind of artificial divide mm-hmm. between a, a, a project that might be described as more social and a project that might be described as more mm-hmm aesthetic and design based and so yeah like for you how does this kind of make you think about how design is functioning a space like that and what kind of ideas does that bring into your yeah work? no I, I I appreciate what you're saying about us trying to bridge the often perceived gap between the social and the aesthetic it's definitely a driver and we're simultaneously trying to bridge the very real gap between um, social class and the kind of tribalist ethos of our contemporary moment Mm -hmm. where identity politics is really um, something that's very complicated and very difficult uh, to to predict or to to work with and so we're blurring lots of boundaries that precede us Um, A space like this, which is like a delirious smorgasbord of found objects, from the aluminum picnic tables to the knockoff Mies van der Rohe couches where single dads can watch their kids bounce up and down while they're trying, you know, checking their Instagram. These, these moments and these proximities, I think, are what begin to um, erase uh, some of the social predispositions that we have. I think very quickly people become performative in a mm-hmm. space like this. Um, you talked about not having walls, uh, being um, exposed to infinite the infinite legibility of the field condition, um, the construction of an interior space which actually learns from a kind of landscape sensibility. It's almost like it's a it's an interior playground, mm-hmm. which is so strange. Um, so there are I think there are clues. Uh, to how um, we can begin to imagine um, everyone sharing a bizarrely constructed and scenographic common ground in a space like this, um, where the kind the the artifice is rendered explicit, like you mentioned, you know, you you climb to the top and you see exactly how it's been rigged together, 
And maybe in this kind of environment, we as characters also begin to understand our constructed nature and perform badly or feel a little bit liberated or realize that we're all kind of foolish when we're bouncing up and down. And so we just kind of let go. We try to use some of these sentiments and strategies of proximity, of um, scenography, of um, maybe even social discomfort uh, to, to our advantage when we set up situational scenarios in our practice. I also would, would comment on the fact like it was very complicated for me to choose the site to take you to mm-hmm. and I, I pondered it quite a bit and um, initially you know thought about spaces in Detroit and then wanted to um, distance myself uh, from the specificity of that place and all of the political mm-hmm. uh, baggage that it holds. It's a fluke that we're working near Detroit. We moved here for the university, but then ended up seeing the possibilities of working in this particular scenario. Um, I don't think Detroit is our driver. It's it's our um, it's our staging ground uh, for a series of social experiments. I think they'd look very different if they ha- had happened somewhere else. We've just been here for for a stretch, so we've had time to to experiment, but. Yeah, we were always trying to figure out from the very beginning. You know, I'll be honest, we moved here like almost a decade ago at this point. And the first three to four years, we didn't build anything in Detroit. We didn't try anything in Detroit. We just didn't even know how to deal with it. So our first project, our first untethered project was in Chelsea, Michigan, which I don't know. Do you know Chelsea? It's just like 20 minutes from Ann Arbor. It's a small town. It's so charming. You know, it's like, you know, kind of Rockwell dream. And um, it had, we found um, uh, the Federal Screw Works plant there, which was an abandoned industrial site. And we walked through it. We loved the name of the place, Federal Screw Works. It's going to make a great tote bag. We were so excited. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we saw all kinds of signs that um, kids were already using the space. They were already appropriating the space. And we contacted the owner and wanted to know what his plans were for the factory. And his plans were to, um, to demolish it and build a, a big box or a dollar store. We asked him if we could use the space in the interim, and he said, sure. And so that's where we built our first Michigan project with uh, Stephen Christensen, our colleague at that time. We built a pavilion that we inserted into the boiler room. And basically, there was no other sign that would tell you that there was something in this space except for a crack, a kind of cut that we made into the boiler room wall. And you could crawl in there and walk in and you would be sort of in this overly saturated, hyperly articulated, geometrically complex uh, projective geometry pavilion. Um, And then every so often, uh, the soundtrack would come on, and the soundtrack um, was of the Playboy Bunny uh, that we were working with at the time. Um, we were working with a Playboy Bunny who was reading texts by John Ruskin and Viola Leduc, and suddenly, you know, you'd be in this like super saturated space, and these voices would come on telling you um, stories about ruin porn. That was our first project, <laughs> uh, and. We kind of kept that attitude ever yeah. ever since, you know, creating. We've always thought that um, the kind of untethered possible imaginary space uh, that architecture can produce stands in stock contrast to the austerity of any 
scenario and um, can be liberating in 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 the way that it can be playful or it can it doesn't have to be didactic regardless of how serious the urban condition is. Sky zone is a framework. It's not quite a space. <laughs> It's um, it has rules, and those rules are being enforced by um, like young employees that look despondent. Like lifeguard, despondent lifeguards, <laughs> despondent like sixteen-year-old lifeguards are watching over the way people are acting in the space. Mm. You have clues about what you're supposed to do. You know, you have like the the things that you can use to hit someone else, or you have a, a rope that you can try to um, navigate. There there are clues, but overall you're not quite certain how to act and what to do and what's expected of you. And so in many ways, I think that, you know, airtime or sky zone is ultimately a kind of landscaped framework for possible activities. We've been thinking about this concept a lot. You know, we, we were just, um, we've been working on a project with Agence Terre to design um, what could be a cultural district for Detroit mm -hmm. with the Detroit Institute of Art in the center and 12 other stakeholder institutions that are right now pretty haphazardly arranged um, on a modernist plan. And what kind of ways could architecture think about bringing those um, disparate institutions with their idiosyncratic uh, ideologies and programs together without erasing their individuality? Like, how do you plug in um, a bunch of characters into a common play where they can all act like themselves but know that they belong? That is really, that, that was a big challenge. <laughs> but in, in, in some way, I think that um, our proposal, our current proposal, it's still, you know, there's still three, three options out there. So we, you know, maybe we stand a chance, I don't know. <laughs> but... Um, our proposal, I think, in some ways, uh, resembles the the idea of a framework rather than um, a plausible solution that requires testing how people would actually interact with uh, a given set of rules and a given set of um, affordances. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I think like secretly we learn from that. We also are humbled by the kind of space that like we're not ironic. Um, we're not overly sincere, but we're not ironic when we go to airtime because we're trying to figure out, like, we would have never imagined designing a space like that that's, like, so um, self-conscious about its constructed nature, that's uh, so exuberant about human activity, that's so hodgepodge in the end. We might not have gone there. Frankly, I could have never even imagined inserting a trampoline park into a small, like, little big box store. But we're constantly looking for those environments mm -hmm. so that we can understand the possibilities of popular interaction with space. And to always, you know, remind <clears throat> ourselves that we, we can't only design to good taste and to uh, kind of, you know... Um, the predispositions of architecture and its thinking about program mm -hmm. that we have to also learn from from the way um, popular culture works and the way popular spaces and festivals and fairs and things that are a little messy and um, slightly uncouth, <laughs> you know, like what they deliver mm -hmm. as possibilities in the urban realm. 
Yeah, I think that that idea of affordances is really wonderful too. Um, and that space, um, you, not even just the trampoline park that's currently there, you don't quite know how to use, but you know, <laughs> it as a as a big box strip mall, yeah. um, as we've mentioned, is a kind of nice. Um, often those spaces, people don't know what to do with them, right? Um, when the Whole Foods leaves or, you know, the um, Kmart closes down, um, yeah, people are not sure what to do with those types of spaces. And so I think there's some possibility there to think about just architecture's ability to um, afford uh, new programs and new possibilities. And that yeah. sometimes it's actually those um, preconceptions that we have <laughs> that actually sort of limit our thinking as mm-hmm. designers. Sometimes we put those constraints on ourselves because of years of training that we've had or years yeah. of practice or a year of years of dealing with budgets and mm-hmm. um, constraints it's uh, yeah it's I think that's why maybe why we enjoy teaching as well and, and the way that you're talking about the high school students is that they're you're constantly in contact with people who have preconceptions but they're maybe different than the ones that we have now and so um, yeah that space to me was um, new and unique I mean we did another site visit at um, Bounce Milwaukee um, which was a similar kind of experience but then also very different as we're reflecting on it today this um, this was also about jumping (laughs) but in a completely different way it was like more jumping more as like professional tumbling or as um, related to sports and more a kind of hardcore athlete where you must have been good at that (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah whereas bounce milwaukee felt more like um because the colors were so different there and the vibe was so different and more Mm -hmm. um kind of cartoonish vibe whereas this had that kind of air of um you know that slick gray that they were using as if you were there to train for something right Um, train for the next birthday party maybe yeah or for the the television show the gladiator yes kind of experience Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think that in your work in particular there is a kind of also a parallel clear interest with the production of image Um, and so I wanted to kind of maybe talk a little bit about the kind of balance between something that might read as more open-ended and is available to other contingencies down the road but at the same time produces an image which tends to be frozen and specific um, and and a fixed identity for each project so I just want to unpack a little bit because I think it's There's a lot of talk about affordances and and more open frameworks in design, but I think you guys have a very unique approach um, in this kind of like duality, and I just want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's super interesting. Like, so I I often come out of the closet as a semiologist first before being a... (laughs) Oh my, okay, so we're going there. (laughs) But like my my training was was first and foremost in image production. I studied modern culture and media as, as an undergraduate rather than architecture. Um, was really fond of Derrida. Let's face it, tried to tried to be him. Like, <laughs> Who did? Total, total fail. <laughs> but um, yeah, so for for me, um, I've always been um, interested in iconicity and the symbolic value of things that we put together. And my partner Jean Louis started out as a photographer. So in many ways, the two of us are are always starting with what would be the production of an image, and then we realize that as the architects that we are working in the environment that we that we have access to 
um, our capital, our access to capital can only go so far. So we can't produce large scale, urban scaled um, interventions. We can produce um, really tactical um, image-based uh, environments that think very shrewdly about how to disseminate their characteristics and vibe and, and qualities, but we're always conscientious that they live in a much larger context where there are open spaces, affordances, and that meaning in those larger spaces are created by um, the occupants and the participants in some sort of strange environment that we choreograph. Um, so yeah, we, we create these events and there's always uh, an icon or a symbol or a marker that signifies that something is amok or something's happening or something isn't quite normal, uh, something strange about a given context, and there's always a, a plethora of space for people to act out their, their imaginaries and uh, their own relationships to, to place. And we, we're trying to balance that. Yeah, no, I, I think it's yeah. great. I mean, because I yeah. think that, I mean, you say balance, but at the same time, like, I don't think they're there's any real need to like I think you can kind of let that um, kind of juxtaposition live and thrive because I think what's interesting mm -hmm. about it is it produces uh, things that can be appreciated at different speeds and circulate in different ways so there's quite literally like image circulation yeah. in terms of like how that iconicity allows the project to be offered to other audiences that can't experience it directly and then there's also like the immediacy of the icon in the context to let you know to start thinking about that context in a new way. It's almost like a kind of, um, I don't know, it's it's kind of the, the first signal that something's amiss, yeah. and then you create a kind of richness that is explored at a slower speed. And I think that's really fascinating as a kind of... Yeah, but then really the, the crux of what we're doing yeah. is designing a hidden framework. Okay. So in all of these environments that we produce, there's the the secret of where the porta potty is that's never in the image. There's the secret of how we um, deal with food, and um, who has access to food and how to bring food to to, to the party. Um, there are all of these um, secret elements and and the kind of dirty laundry of our projects, mm -hmm. and the planning and the the fundraising and the galvanization of, of groups of people to participate in these things that's probably 90% of what we do right. and then like the pleasure of the symbol is what pops out at the end <laughs> and lives beyond us right. yeah so you you don't you know in the yeah. in the practice you know you guys um, your work like you recently uh, were a lead prize winner and you mounted an exhibition of your work is that mm -hmm. right so young so young I mean I'm such a young prize uh, according to the league, this is the case. So, yeah. um, no, well, and I, last year I was. Last year, right, right, no longer. Yeah, I, I, you that had your year. Yeah. Let, let it go. Um, now I'm seasoned. <laughs> so now that you're seasoned and looking back, no, I, I think it's interesting because that was a context where um, all of the projects are presented in, in a gallery. Mm -hmm. But obviously, um, you guys have um, ambitions about a project mm -hmm. that is. Uh, really active in the world and, and, and at large. And maybe we could swing this around into more a kind of larger question about maybe some of the things that you would like to see uh, discussed in the discipline about maybe pivoting away from the project and its visuality and more into like mm -hmm. your mode of practice. I think mm -hmm. I would really like to talk about mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. as, a kind of, as a kind of model. 
Well, you're you're catching me at a real turning point in how we understand our own mode of practice. Um, you know, in the last five years, we've been operating as kind of secret agents of sort. We've been posing as artists. We've been using art foundation dollars to sponsor our architectural activity. Um, we've been, you know, um, designing uh, institutions rather than projects. So in the last five years, we started five different institutions. Um, and those have allowed us to, you know, build our, our partnerships, but also create these um, very experimental projects in the urban realm. We're coming to a place where we're not certain that we were as astute or crafty as the foundations have been simultaneously in their instrumentalization of our work. Interesting. And so we're coming to this little moment <laughs> where we're starting to reassess. We've been very proud of ourselves as like these free thinkers who were able to identify our own sites, our own um, funding mechanisms, our own uh, groups, test our own programs, and then produce our own projects. And so we were like, oh my God, we're so fabulous. We're, we're <laughs> autonomous. We don't have clients in the normative sense. Um, but somewhere along the line, this is a really difficult uh, way to practice also. It's challenging because it takes a hell of a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. Uh, but in the end, maybe the best thing that we've produced is a kind of spatial buffer between the client, which is you know a neighborhood or a community or a group, and the source material for the capital. But we're just still in a buffer zone between those two uh, constituents. We haven't eliminated the problem of where capital comes from and um, how it's instrumentalized in the urban realm. And so we're still, we feel like we're still complicit um, and that our, you know, utopian ideals haven't come quite to fruition. But that doesn't mean that um, we're willing to give up. We're just in a place where we're reassessing the kinds of uh, narratives about autonomy that we thought were possible. Anya, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about SkyZone, the way its programmatic disposition has inspired your work, and many exciting projects from your practice. For images of our day jumping at SkyZone, visit our website or see us on Instagram. For Eric Herman, I'm Ashley Bigham. Thanks for joining us. Site Visit is hosted by Ashley Bigham and Eric Herman of Outpost Office and is produced by Matthew Schulman. <laughs>